Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another really great edition of the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast. Um, You guys know how much I love memoirs of trauma and recovery and post-traumatic hope and all of that. So today I'm going to bring you a author of a memoir. We're going to be speaking to Brandy Cox. She is the author of In Better Hands, an Appalachian memoir of healing and grace. And it was released on January 16th. So very new of this year. So very new write out. So we can bond over the whole writing a book process because I'm still in the throes of mine. And her story is really, really fascinating. So I'm just going to let her introduce herself. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to be here and to chat with you. I am a brand new debut author that ultimately wanted to use my story to help others. And I feel like the my memoir of what I went through as a child will help others understand that there is hope past the trauma and that you can break the generational curses if you're able and willing to put in the work and the time to help heal yourself first. Yeah, so true. Can you tell everybody a little bit of your story just so that they get a sense and probably some of us can really relate? Yes. So my birth parents were not married. And when they got pregnant with me, I was a surprise child. So between three to six weeks old, my paternal grandparents decided to adopt me. Once that adoption started, my birth father lived with us off and on. Throughout my childhood, he did have a stint in prison and in rehab, but ultimately was with us the majority of the time besides that. When I was in third grade, he decided to take his life. He felt like that he had hurt people too much and that he did not have a way to come back from that and ultimately wanted the pain to stop for everyone, him and everyone that he loved. So he committed suicide in the house that he was raised in, and in fact, the house that I was raised in as well. So it was me and my mother, which I call her my mom because they adopted me so young, that was at the house that morning with a family friend when it happened. So there's been a lot of blaming myself, a lot of what ifs, and wishing that things could have been done differently. As far as my birth father's uh, suicide goes. So there was a lot of healing and trying to understand that it was out of my control. Yeah, I could imagine that's such a painful thing to go through in third grade, like you were so little. Did you, growing up before that, did you know that he was your birth father, but they were your grandparents? Like how, how much of your story did you know? Yes. So as early back as I can remember, I always knew that my grandparents decided to adopt me because they loved me and wanted to be my parents and they were mom and dad and that my birth father, I called him Big Daddy and I knew my birth mom as well. They never hid the story from me. It 
was something that I just thought was normal. I thought other kids had the same family. You know, he did have to give up the role of the disciplinary. My parents took that role on, and that was something that they were adamant about, that he would not have the ability to discipline me or be a parent in that right. But they never kept him out besides that. So he was just a like sort of almost like a big brother figure, like in the in the role in the family. But they were the parents. Yes. So when he died, you were there. So did you find out right away? How did that how did that happen? Well, actually, that morning we had been begging him not to commit suicide. And he had told us that he had decided not to do it and had asked mom to fix his favorite breakfast, which was boiled eggs and coffee. Her and our family friend went downstairs to make that, and she asked me to stay with him. So I was sitting there on the floor. He was exhausted, partly from alcohol, and I think partly just from the exhaustion of the mental strain that he was in. And his head was completely drooped down, not talking very much at all. And finally, he asked me to go downstairs and help mom carry the food up. And I was like, well, she told me not to leave. And he insisted that he would be fine for me to go help. So I walked down our steps. We had a flight of steps and then a little platform and two more steps. And when I hit the platform, he hollered and said, I'm sorry, sissy, I love you. And then by the time I turned around and got back upstairs, uh, two shots had went off by then. So I was the last and first person to see him. Wow. You were put into the position of such adult responsibility. And I get they were all trying to do the best they could with the tools they had. Your mom, your, you know, your birth father, they, you know, I think he thought he was protecting you by sending you out. But I can certainly relate. I was also a child given too much responsibility for, you know, life and death at a very young age. So that can really do a lot to our psyche. And that can really do a lot to our sense of like judgment about ourselves and the world. You must have been beating yourself up as a little kid, like I shouldn't have laughed, I should have laughed, I did the right thing. I mean, you're a kid, you did what the adult said. I felt so guilty and I did for years up until early adulthood. I questioned, you know, had I stayed, he might have still been here. We might have been able to have gotten him the help he needed and things might have been different. The one decision that I made changed everybody's life. And I really felt that in my heart and it affected everything. You know, I went to trying to micromanage my whole life like I had to have And I didn't understand why I had to have plans for plans and a backup plan. Like there was no more of just winging it. And I couldn't stand not knowing after that. And I think that was part of it. The control of not being able to trust my circumstances anymore. Yeah. It's that feeling like when Brandy makes mistakes, right? Bad things can happen. Although you really didn't make a decision. I'm sure you came to that in adulthood, right? You did what every small child does. You listen to the grownups. Yes. Yes. And, you know, counseling, I would not have came to that, I don't think, without counseling. It was a very important part of my healing. You probably didn't see the connection between those two things, right? The like perfectionism, the needing everything to be organized and scheduled and predictable and your father's suicide. You probably didn't see that. No, I didn't. I just considered it a quirk that I had. I had no idea why 
but I would get really upset if someone would point it out to me and be like, can't you just relax? And it was like, no, how how could you even ask me to relax? We have to know these. We have to know this path. And that was part of it. I mean, and I still struggle with that, trying to micromanage every piece. I really have to be conscious of that and step back sometimes. I had that, especially as a parent, with being very afraid to make mistakes because, you know, when I make mistakes, my relationships suffer because I had a similar, I had a very sick father and I was given a lot of responsibilities for caring for him. And ultimately, you know, I made mistakes simply because I was too young. So as a, as an adult and as a parent, very often I would feel I would, I would question myself. You know, I have to do it right. I have to do it perfectly. If this goes wrong, something terrible will happen. And I really was being too controlling, but I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. But it's easy to do that when you're in that situation, when you had similar experiences, you're just trying to protect everyone. Yeah. Did you come to counseling from a place of important relationships in your life told you that you need counseling? Or was it, I can't handle this pain anymore? Like what got you there? So it was after my oldest son was born and I finally realized what it meant to have a child that was dependent on me. And I knew I was faking it. I felt like I was faking that I was okay well enough, but it wasn't good enough for him. And I did not want him to grow up feeling the way I felt, feeling the sadness from my parents, because I think that's hard when you know that your parents are sad because you want to protect them and help them and take care of them and love them. You don't want to see your parents as sad. And I did not want my kids to ever see that side of me. So ultimately, I went to counseling to try to make sure that he didn't have to heal from faults of myself, from me. Yeah, we all do that. We come to the place of healing because of our kids. Like, we're okay with our coping tools. It's just when, you know, and like, whatever, the disadvantages are sort of like, okay, yeah, this is how I keep my trauma happy. It's okay. But when it hits our kids, right, that's when we're like, nope. (laughs) You don't mess with our kids. No, no. Yeah. It's like our inner mama bear comes out against our inner mama bear, you know, and like has to figure it out. It does. It probably was even harder for you because sadness was probably a fraught topic for you. Like sadness in some ways is what killed your father. So we didn't talk about that growing up. You did not talk about being depressed. You did not talk about sadness. I mean, that was something my husband and I have a saying that there's an Isaac face, which was my maiden name, that we would grit our teeth and you could tell that we were hiding and holding everything back, but we were not going to let that emotion out. And that was kind of how we all were, because I, I don't think anybody knew how to deal with what we had dealt with. Yeah. Do you think it was like a cultural thing? Do you think it was very much a family thing? I think back then it was culture. And I also think it's where we grew up. You know, we grew up in Eastern Kentucky. There may have been counselors around then, but I don't ever remember hearing about counselors. You definitely didn't hear people going to them. If this tells you anything, we went to the doctor for me because I was exhausted. And I said this in my book, like it was a different level of exhaustion. I would watch my friends go to school, play extracurriculars and be able to do all this stuff. And I I physically couldn't. I mean, just going to school all day, I was exhausted. Trying to do anything else was just almost too much. Like I just wanted to lay on the couch. So my doctor tested me for B12 
and mono. And I guess mono came back fine because they gave me B12 injections for, I don't know, maybe a month or so. And when it didn't change, we just stopped. That was it. Like there was no other talking of why. But, you know, I look back at the symptoms I was having and it was classic depression, but it was just not addressed. You know, I was raised by a generation above me. So my grandparents weren't aware of what depression really was and going to counseling. That's not something that their generation talked about. Yeah. You know, you just got up and you went back to work or you went to the farm or to the coal mines or whatever you did. And that's kind of how we all coped. And it really, you know, I watched it really hurt both of them because they didn't get to grieve the right way or get the help. And I see the pain that they carried for the rest of their lives. And I just think that had mental health been more prevalent and more accepted in that time, that things could have been so different for my birth father and for the rest of our family as we grieved. Yeah, because they didn't know how to grieve themselves, so they certainly couldn't teach you how to grieve. No, they didn't. You know, that morning when that happened with my birth father, everything for my mom changed in that moment. You know, that was her youngest son, and she felt guilty, and, you know, she felt like she had failed him, and I saw her lose a piece of herself that she never got back, and my dad was the same way. He literally went back to work and worked in the coal mines as much as he could or was in the garden. And I think that was his way of not dealing with it. Just kept working. Yeah, like physically just moving and keep working and keep moving forward. But you don't like think about it or talk about it or say anything about it. No, you know, he is past now as well. But we never talked about my birth father's suicide. My dad and I didn't. That was just something he didn't talk about. And it wasn't it's not because he was embarrassed. That's not it, I don't think. I just don't think he emotionally knew how to talk about it or could handle talking about it. Sounds like he didn't have a context for sadness. He just didn't have, you know, words. No. And maybe it would have been too big if he spoke about it. Like he didn't, it's not like he had models for speaking about it. No. I mean, it went back generations. You just dealt with it. You put it behind you and you gritted your teeth and you went on. And they did. They did the best that they absolutely could do for me. I had an amazing childhood because of them. I think about the fact that they got up every day and still did for me when you could tell that they were not themselves anymore, which made me love them more and want to turn around and protect them because I wanted them to be okay. I wanted them to be happy. And they deserved that because they went above and beyond. They did for Roger and they did for me. I mean, Even in their saddest times, they still tried to show up. And I know that. Yeah. So you weren't going to ask them questions that you knew they couldn't answer because they were putting food on the table and they were were giving you a loving home and they were raising you. So you needed to pay that back. Yep. So I kept my mouth shut and talked about easy stuff. Very few times did we ever talk about it. Now, as I got much older, my mom would talk about my birth father more with me, not about not a lot about a suicide. That was very minimal, but we would laugh about some of the memories. And she did finally share some of the hard memories that she had of him with me so that I could understand both sides. But, you know, she tried to shield me from a lot of that. 
they didn't want me to know a lot of the bad stuff because they didn't want me to think less of him ultimately. Yeah, because they didn't realize that generation didn't realize that the more complete picture doesn't make us think less of people. It actually helps. Yeah, it definitely helps. When you understand the bigger picture, it's just, it gives you more love. It gives you more understanding and tolerance. But yeah, I could imagine how that would just become that physical depression of, I just can't move. I would love to, but I'm just too tired. Yeah, I mean, it was the oddest thing. I didn't try in school. I mean, I didn't try to do bad, but my grades are subpar. I did extracurriculars, I think maybe one year out of high school, and I just didn't have anything else left to give. I could fake it and try to blend in with groups and stuff for short periods of time, but then I would have to pull away and like almost recoup, recover. Yeah, because you were carrying it. Yeah, it was hard. And I didn't want my kids to have anything like that. Even though I know my parents didn't mean to put it on me, just like I wouldn't have meant to put it on them, it I did not want to roll the dice and take the chance. Yeah. Was parenting at the beginning confusing for you? How many kids do you have? Two now. Okay. So how old are your kids now? 16 and nine. Uh, I have a little boy that's six. Well, he's not little. He's taller than me, but he's 16 <laughs> and my daughter is. Yeah. Yeah, my boys are also taller than me. And it's like, oh, wow. Like, when did that happen? Like, you're not supposed to be that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But nine is also like a fun age for girls because they can be very moody and emotional. And, you know, like they're they're real people at nine. With real opinions on everything. Yes. Oh, yeah. Was it confusing for you at the very beginning to parent? Like when you first were holding your baby son, was it like... I don't know how to do this, or was it instinctive? Well, you know, honestly, I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to do it. Like, I was afraid I was not going to have that bond or that connection. That was a real fear. I was afraid that I was not going to be able to connect with him the way that parents say that they connect, especially moms. I was really afraid that I would not be able to give him that love and support that he needed because I didn't really know how to give that. So it it was really scary, but his little smile and the giggles, it really did soften my heart. I don't know how else to say that, but I could feel things I didn't think I would ever be able to let myself feel. Yeah. I had a very similar experience with my oldest daughter that when she was born, I kept like searching myself, like, do I love her? Do I love her? Do I love her? How would I know if I love her? Because I used to keep my emotions very, very small, so I just didn't know. And then I would take care of her. And then I remember discussing this. I was in psychology school at the time, and I remember, like, pouring my heart out to a very wise professor of mine. And she said, like, you feed her and you change her and you sing to her and you soothe her. And she is going to take that as love. Like, stop examining your heart. That is love to a baby. Like, you change her diaper, you hug her, you cuddle her, you, you know, you do all the mom things. Her brain is going to interpret that as love. You don't have to worry about it. And then one day she smiled up at me, but like it was a real, wasn't gas. It was like a real smile of recognition. Like you are my mom kind of. And my heart just filled with this sensation. I was like, that's love. Of course I love her. Why was I ever asking myself that question? But I, I think for me also, I had a lot of self doubt and I had a lot of messages that I was, you know, I was told that I was, you know, not going to be very maternal, like from people who were very critical to me. Those were like some questions in my head. 
And then suddenly it was like, yeah, of course I love her. Like, and then the question seemed ludicrous, like once that happened, but it was that first real smile of recognition where she just looked up at me and had that look on her face, like, you're my mom and that's awesome. Like, and then after that, it was like, oh, of course I love her. Like, what? Why was I even thinking that? Yeah. When you're her most important person, it changes everything, I think. Yeah, it does. And that's when we start saying, oh my goodness, my coping tools, the things that are keeping my life small, I've got to get a handle on them. Yes, because it's not worth it to them. They're so fragile. Yeah. Were your parents worried about like signs of addiction or things like that in you? Were they scared that you'd go down your father's path? They, so we, besides him bringing alcohol in, we never had alcohol or drugs in our house ever. And my mom never mixed words on what she thought about alcohol at all levels. My dad was just, again, it was known that that was not acceptable. And, you know, yeah, she talked to me because he started drinking at 10 years old. So, I mean, he started at a very young age because he had a learning disability. And he was basically covering that learning disability. So they were very adamant about me. They kept me very close to home. They knew where I was at all times, who I was with. Even after I got my license, back then we went cruising, and I never took my car cruising, ever. If I went out, it was with one special friend or with my niece, which is my brother's daughter. So they knew where I was at all times. And alcohol was a really big worry for them, for me to be addicted to. They didn't understand back then that it might be hereditary, might not be hereditary. They were just afraid. They did not want me to go down the path that he had went down. And I'll be honest, that's something that I've always been really conscious about myself. Even like after surgeries, taking pain medicine and things, I've always been very vocal with a doctor and let them know that, you know, I've had addiction in my family from both sides of my parents. And I'm very scared of that happening to me. I mean, I do have a social drink, of course, but I do not do anything with any consistency just in case because, you know, you don't know. Yeah. You absorb that message like alcohol is dangerous, mind altering drugs are dangerous, and you would never do that to them. Like they were so terrified of it. Yes. I mean, it just would not happen. You know, I had cervical spine surgery. So I came home and honestly, the pain was better after the surgery than before when I was hurt. So I didn't need the muscle relaxers or the pain pills. So I didn't take them. And when I went back to him, he was shocked that I did not need all of them. And I was like, well, the pain was better after surgery than what I ever was before. It's just not something that I take lightly. And I don't take it lightly with my kids either for anything like that. You know, our oldest son had his wisdom teeth taken out and um, we only let him have over the counter. And You know, it's something that I think I will always be on guard with. And honestly, I probably wouldn't be in a relationship with anyone, you know, unless I had gotten in the relationship and then they become addicted. I'm not saying I'd walk out. I was very cautious before I met my husband and we got married on what his opinions were on alcohol and drugs and if he overused anything, because I won't bring that back into my life or into my kid's life. 
So interesting. We have such different backgrounds, but I have a similar, my father had an addictive personality, but just with smoking cigarettes, but ultimately that's what killed him. He had a very bad heart condition and he couldn't quit smoking. So even though his doctors warned him that, you know, you will die of a heart attack if you keep smoking, he couldn't stop. Um, He tried so many times, but he just couldn't stop. For me, because of my PTSD, I I'm a very hypervigilant person. Like I never got that message that maybe I have an addictive personality too, but I'm such a control freak and I have such um because my because of how my PTSD happened because I was, you know, I actually administered CPR to my father when he was dying unsuccessfully. So I'm very hypervigilant, like I am a very light sleeper. I, I'm very on top of anything safety related. I can't stand being out of control. So even after surgery, I've said to doctors, like, I'd rather have the pain but be in control and I'll just feel the pain than feel foggy and fuzzy and out of control. For me, that's more painful. You know, so, yeah, I've definitely like after like after I had a C-section, I definitely was on pain pills for a couple of days, but the fastest I could get off it because I hated the fuzziness. So I had that same thing. I went back with like half the bottle and gave it back to the doctor. I was like, I don't need these. And he said, oh, wow, you know, you don't be a hero. You can take your pain pills if you need to. It doesn't go into the breast milk, whatever, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, no, I do not like what being on this stuff makes me feel like. So no. I mean, if there was an ability to be addicted to caffeine, I probably would say like, yeah, you know, things that that advance my sharpness. Thankfully, the things that advance your sharpness that are addictive are not readily available to most people. It's not like, you know, people can usually get the kind of drugs that make you like, you know, I guess theoretically you can get street drugs that make you more high, but uh, not in a way that you would remain in control of yourself. So, yeah. No, and I don't, I'm like you, I don't like to be out of control. I need to be functioning. Yeah. And I think for those of us who've experienced any form of PTSD, like I can tell you almost to the ounce, like what my alcohol limit is, you know, like one half a glass of wine at like a wedding or something, I'm fine, not gonna not gonna take the second half a glass, even if it was delicious. And even if someone offers me a mixed drink that they made or some, you know, some like, you know, the signature cocktail for the bride and groom, like, yeah, that's okay. I had my half a glass of wine. I'm good. Yep. And I'm that way. I sip on a drink very slowly when we have social drinks. You know, I had my wild time in college when I was dealing. That was one of my coping mechanisms was to drink the pain away. And I realized how wrong that was. And after that, it never interfered with work. But if we were out at a party, I was going to drink. And now I'm totally the opposite. Now that I've realized things, I'm like, "Mm, I'm good. I'll sip on this the whole time we're here. And it looks like I'm being social with everyone else. Yeah, because that we all it's interesting what people find pleasurable and what they don't find pleasurable. For me, that's just not pleasurable. That feeling of being sick and the world spinning and you not knowing what you're doing, that just is not fun to me. I mean, I guess in college when you needed liquid courage or whatever to get through the night, but now, no. Well, back then, you also had no other mechanism really for dealing with the pain, but the pain was probably coming up pretty high. It was. So that was an easy thing to do. And I hid it from my parents. I don't think they ever knew. They never asked and I never said during that time span. But it didn't get out of control. It didn't get addicted. Thank goodness. Now I try to be very cautious. Tell me more about, you know, your parenting years and what that was like, that adjustment to parenting, especially given like, you know, the history you had. Your children are being raised in such a different family than the way you were raised. Well, so. Air kids know about 
Roger about my birth father. Sorry. And I've been really open with them about what happened, why it happened. We try to do a lot of family things together. I think sometimes I annoy them because I'm a little bit persistent about doing this as a family and we have to do this and we need to make that a tradition. So I think at one point I was trying to overcompensate and make sure to give them everything that I could. And that ended up being more fights and everybody frustrated and annoyed by the time we were done. So we've backed off now and a little bit and realized that honestly, game nights at home with the kids, they have more fun and it's stress-free for us and it feels like we can connect better. So we try to connect with them on their level. We try to always ask about their day, about their classes, about their friends, because we want to have those prying questions that they feel like they can answer and talk to us about. The hard part is now with our 16-year-old of not overstepping. You know, he's going through the breakups and the first loves and trying to navigate not over saying, do this, do that, or you should do this, and trying to listen more. That's been hard because you just want to fix it. And you can see how you think they should fix it, but sometimes they have to come to that conclusion. So that's what we've been trying here lately. And I feel like he is opening up a little bit more now that we're not talking back. We're just listening. So we try to do that. And we try to just let them know that they can come to us if they're sad, if they are depressed, if they're angry. We don't want them to think they have to hide those feelings. And we don't hide it from them. If we've had a bad day, you know, we'll tell them, I'm sorry, it's been an awful day. And I know I'm in a horrible mood. And I don't mean that aimed at you. So we really try to make sure that they understand that it doesn't have to be roses and smiles every day, all day. Like there's space for big emotions, Mm -hmm. which is probably stuff that you had to come to as they were growing up. It probably didn't come naturally to you at first. No, it didn't, because some stuff I would be like, what? We we can't act like that. We can't say that. But it, it is. It's, you know, I feel like in some ways I'm growing up with them. You know, I am learning from my mistakes and maturing with them and trying to let them guide me on how they need me to react with them. But most importantly, knowing that this is a safe place. They come and tell us anything that they need to tell us and trying to draw a balance between what they could get in trouble over telling us and what they can't, especially with our older son now, making sure he understands both that, yes, we want him to tell us everything, but if it is something really bad that he should not have been doing, does not mean he doesn't get in trouble just because he came and told us. So, you know, we're really trying to navigate how to be the parents that you can count on, but also the enforcers right now. Hi, friends. I'm interrupting this episode to let you know that we now have a post-traumatic parenting YouTube channel. Yeah, that's right. We finally have a YouTube channel. It's for everything that needs a little bit more of a visual component, maybe some pictures, maybe some demonstrations. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to YouTube, search for post-traumatic parenting and subscribe to the channel. Make sure to click the little bell in the bottom of your screen so you never miss a single episode. And please let me know if there are topics you'd like us to cover on the post-traumatic parenting YouTube channel. If you do join the YouTube channel because you heard about it on this podcast, feel free to DM me or mention that in the comments and you will have my undying appreciation. Thank you for listening. And now back to the episode. 
Yeah, it's very hard because the stakes are very high in adolescence. I mean, you make a mistake in fourth grade, like not much happens. You know, you tell your best friend's secret and like then she's mad at you and you figure it out. But you can, you know, get someone pregnant in high school. You can crash a car. You can, you know, kids that age, it's like two-year-olds. You know, they have all of the physical ability and none of the brakes. Yes, yes, yes. So, oh, and boys are hard at that age. Yeah. They get angry easily. They're touchy. And then they open up at unpredictable times. And let it all out. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to hear the you know, genuine plea for connection out of all the anger and all the like, I don't want to hear it, you know, and all the like pushback. It is. It's hard. And you have to be able sometimes to take their anger and not react to it so that you can get to the other side. And that's not always easy. No, definitely not. Especially for when you have that history of knowing that teenagers can really do things that mess up their lives. You know, that fear must like hit there in the back of your head a little bit. It does. It does. And and sometimes I worry that I have maybe pushed that on him because he's a perfectionist. He's a 4.0 and he already thinks he knows what he wants to do when he grows up and what college he wants to go to and his whole path. And he feels like in some ways I look at him and I'm like, but I didn't force any of that on you. But I see you feeling like you have to know A, B and C right now. Even down to like when we go out to eat and it drives my husband crazy, but he'll be like, so what time do you think we'll be home? And Jamie will always be like, why? So he wants his world predictable. <laughs> yes. I mean, he cannot stand the unknown at all. I mean, down to the little details of it. And that worries me because I see him putting a lot of stress on himself. So I try to step back. And some of that is probably personality, right? Like some of that is just, you know, and some of that probably is learned behavior from you. And some of that is stuff he's going to have to negotiate. He's just going to have to figure that out. It's not a bad. I think everything that we have in uh, in our every characteristic we have could be put to like good use or bad use. You know, that's not a bad trait. It could be put to great use. It could be a superpower. It could. He thinks he's going into politics. So we're all going to need a lot of support. <laughs> I would be scared to have my kid go into politics right now, given it's terrifying, you know, given how contentious politics is. Yeah, that probably would scare me. He's going in thinking that he wants to change the world and help everyone. I mean, great thoughts, but he says the childlike mindset and doesn't see what we see in it right now. But like watching a debate or a caucus is like a Super Bowl for our house. We have snacks. It's a big deal. So we try to support what he wants to do, but it, it's scary as a mom to sit back and see him that focused. Yeah, it is, it is scary. It's scary when they have minds of their own and things that I, we wouldn't be able to protect them with. One of my kids excels in an area that I have no, I have no knowledge of. I have no, I can't guide him. I can't help him. I just don't know anything about it. I happen to be pretty tone deaf when it comes to music and my son's a musician. It's like, I can't, I don't have opinions. I don't, you know, I, I can't guide you in any way. All I can do is support you. I will smile and clap while you're doing it. Exactly. And that's not easy when you feel like you need to control the circumstances around them. Yeah. It's very hard. Like my son will sit there sometimes and be like, what do you think of the bass on the song? And I'm like, I don't know what the bass is. Like, I don't know. <laughs> that would have been my comment. What, can you point out the bass? Yeah. 
But yeah, it's it's like, and when that's a field where you're like, well, music, so what kind of a future is that? How is that consistent? But then if you're an artist, you want to be an artist, right? So like, it's hard. We don't think that. I think when we're young parents and we think, yeah, I'm going to support them in whatever they want to do. And, you know, when they're five and they're like, yeah, I'm going to grow up to be a fireman, policeman, ambulance driver, you know, scuba diver. And you're like, okay, sure, I'll support you. And then when they grow up, you're like, well... Well, let's back that up a little. Yeah. What's the plan here? Yes, you can be a musician, but you do need your high school diploma. And let's talk about college, right? Like, but at the same token, we want them to feel that unconditional love and support. But then we also want to be that, especially if you have PTSD, you want to be that practical person who, you know, makes sure there's a plan and, you know, there's a clear and understandable progression of what's going to go on. Yes. Well, you know, like he says he wants to be in politics and I'm like, okay, well, that's great, but you realize you have to get elected. So what if you don't get elected? What are you going to do then? And he's like, well, I'll just be a lawyer somewhere. And I'm like, no, no, let's, you know, he loves history and that's what got him started in it. And we were like, what about being like a professor at a school or being like a political analyst or someone that analyzes the reports? He would be phenomenal at that. But no, he wants to be out helping and changing. And I'm like, you know, there's volunteer organizations we can help with. But he's he, his freshman year. So it, this came back to bite me as a mom. I've told both kids to chase your dreams. And if you can accomplish something, we will help you get there. If you can win it or if it can happen, we'll help you. So he applied to the PAGE program, which is in Virginia. You live up in Richmond for six weeks or nine weeks, depending on how long the session is and work at the Capitol building. Well, he was a freshman. And I'm like, he's really probably not going to get that. Look at how many kids apply. Sure, go ahead and apply. He got it. Oh, wow. Then I had to put my money where my mouth was and let him go and live in Richmond. It was almost nine weeks. They lived in a hotel room and they had so they had supervisors and chaperones at all times. I mean, they were in excellent hands. But those nine, almost nine weeks, him living in Richmond by himself as a freshman. And this was a kid here that, you know, we couldn't even go and pick up his own shoes. And he had to dress in a blazer and a tie and a button up every day. We're like, he's not going to be able to do this. He's not going to get up at six and be there at the Capitol. And the entire time, he was never late. His clothes were always right. And he excelled up there. You know, we have always tried to tell him, that will will show up, whatever they can do. And so far, he's held us to that. Yeah, well, the passion and the will were there, so he was going to do it. And you gave him that secure platform, so he was like, yep, I'm going to launch from this thing. Oh, and he did. Now, And he didn't shed a tear that day when we left. I cried like a baby. I didn't cry in front of him because I was like, I don't want to make him sad. We got out of the room, and I was like a little blubbering mess. Because I was like, I can't leave him here. I'm going to just rent a room down the hall and stay for the week because he might need me. (laughs) But, you know, he got to come home every weekend. He had to come home. So we picked him up on Fridays, took him back on Sundays. But he did phenomenal up there. And I think part of it's because he knew that we believed that he could. You know, we supported him. And other people, his teachers supported him. He had the best, has and had the best teachers that got behind him. and. It made a difference. So our daughter will be the same way. So you did it. Yeah, I did it. 
Yeah, you did it. You successfully parented independent kids, which is, I mean, that's, they always say about, you know, parenting that you have to give them roots and wings and the roots is the easy part. I never understood that till my kids got old enough to leave how the home. And I was like, oh, yeah, the roots are the easy part. Yeah, they are. Because I'll tell you that it's a different type of a heartache when they're away from you and you can't walk through the hallway and see him or hear him. He loves to remind me now that he's almost going to college, that I've only got a year and a half left. Yeah. But they come back. They do. And that's when it's fun. You know, the Daniel Tiger song about how parents come back? You know, I always sing it to myself, like the children come back too, you know, with lots of laundry. They need us more then. They want home-cooked food because they're starved from the dorms or from eating out. And yes, tons of laundry. So we'll be, you know their favorite people during the college time, hopefully. Yeah. Just switching gears for a minute. I want to ask you about like the process of writing the book. It must have been so intense. How did you handle all the emotions that came up and everything like that? I cried more during writing that book than I've probably ever cried. And like I said, it took, I say two years, but probably more of three because I would have to write some and just stop. And then write more and had to really take breaks. But one thing I did not do is go back and edit. So I did a brain dump all the way through from start to finish. I didn't reread anything. I would just leave me, I would leave like a sentence that I would know kind of where to build from after that and start forward until I finished the book. And going back then and reading it after that first writing was probably harder than writing it because some of it was like, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I let that out. You know, it was, uh, it's freeing. I think when you write, you can, when you're not verbally saying something to someone, you can write your feelings and be more precise and more open and honest than you would ever be verbally, or I was at least. But now I can read it all except for the chapters of His Suicide without crying. Those chapters, I have read the least of any of them. And I've been completely honest about that from the beginning when it would go back and forth to the editor. I kind of, you know, if it was just grammar or something, I would just approve it because that's not something I wanted to keep rereading and rereading over and over. But it did help. Like, I feel like that after writing it, I feel like I'm kind of the happiest I've ever been in my life, if that makes any sense. Yeah, like it was an unburdening, like a freeing. It really was because like I don't have anger anymore like I thought I did. I don't have, I'm not depressed like I was. I'm not sad. And before I would try to hide what had happened. And now I'm more vocal because I'm like, yes, I want to help other people. I want other people to know this doesn't have to be this way. Yeah, it's like that making meaning of a trauma. If I can make it, mean something by supporting someone else, then that's really healing. Yes. Did anything surprise you as you were writing it? Like any connections you made or any stories or memories that came out that you didn't even realize you remembered? So yeah, there were several. (laughs) We grew up in a very small community. And at the time, I took it at face value. We had, we called it living on the hill. So there was six houses, I think, if I'm counting right, beside of us, somewhere around that. And they were all neighbors that had all lived together for years. And those neighbors invested in me 
when I didn't realize it. Um, one of them took me to church with her and she would let me come over and sit on her porch of the evenings and just ramble to her about anything and everything. And then I had a mother, daughter, daughter-in-law trio that would stop by the house sometimes or holler up at us if we were on the porch and invite me to go walking with them. And they would talk to me about my day and they talked to me about school and just made me feel like that it was that I was so important to them. And I didn't realize at the time what they were doing. But when I was writing it, I realized that they were trying to support me and show me that I wasn't alone and that there were people in my corner. And I think that they are probably the reason that I'm here now, because it wasn't just them, but all of them that did the little things like that, that my heart couldn't see at the time helped me now looking back because I was like, wow, I had a community and didn't know I had a community. Yeah, there was so much support there that you perhaps at the time you just took for granted or didn't even realize. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, my goodness, look how often that happened. Yes. You know, and now I see that. And one of them read my book. It was the first draft, the really bad draft. So I asked her to read it because I was she it was an educator. And she knows my story probably as well as anyone. And she read my draft and came to my house to talk to me about it, to give me her reviews and her edits and things like that, because she was still invested. And we hadn't seen each other in, I don't know, years, because we usually only see each other now at funerals, because I live away from there. So it was just the fact that she still drove over about 30, 45 minutes to talk to me about it. And that's when I realized that I had sadness in my childhood, a lot of sadness, but I also had a lot of love. Yeah. And there wasn't enough room for both of them at the same time. Yeah. But it was there. It was there. And that makes all the difference, looking back and knowing that. It must have been so meaningful for her to hear you say that. I think so. I do. Because she's just, she's a special lady. And, you know, her mother-in-law is too. They were at, you know, our wedding. They were at my graduation. They were family without the blood. They showed up for everything. And I guess in some ways I did take that for granted because they were just there. But I, that was the biggest surprise. That's what the research shows, you know, that you have these resilient, supportive relationships. That's what lets people get through trauma. It makes sense. But you also had the ability to take it in. Yeah, and I'm grateful for them. Yeah. So that was one theme in the book that really like surprised you. It was. I just didn't see that coming. Because I'll be honest, I was still like I had a, you know, I had a really sad childhood and was still focusing more on that than all the good. And writing that book, even though I'd been to counseling, writing that book and putting the stories down, because a lot of times when I was talking to the counselor, I didn't talk about a lot of the good things. I only talked about the sadness and the pain and my quirks and why I was doing things the way that I was. But when I was able to write about both, it was like, wow, this wasn't all bad. Yeah. Well, it's both ends. You know, the sadness and the support can coexist. I think with little kids, we can't think that way. Like you're sad or happy as a little kid. And like as a little kid, you're like, I'm just going to pretend to be happy. But then as an adult, it's like, oh, there was so much sadness and there was so much love. Yes. It's also a testament to your mom that she 
gave you enough love that you were able to take in love from other people? I was very fortunate. I mean, I can't say enough about the parents that raised me and the life that they gave me. They didn't have to. They'd already raised their kids. And I never felt like a burden or never felt like that they wished that they had not adopted me. And, you know, I watched her with my birth mom still have a relationship with her and loved her. And she, mom always told me that she was a good person and that she loved her for letting them raise me. So it was never, she did such a good job of never painting it negatively, ever. Wow. When my birth mom was in jail is when my mom that was raising me was dying from cancer. And they actually wanted to talk one last time. So that got arranged for them to talk. And when mom hung up, she was crying and she said, "Um, she's going to be okay. She's turned her life over to God now and she's going to be okay. And she's right. She was okay up until she passed from lung cancer too. But they kept that relationship. But my birth mother respected my relationship with my parents enough that she did not ever overstep. She didn't come to anything she wasn't invited to. And even when she was invited to something, she stayed in the background to not confuse things more. I was in homecoming and cheered briefly, and she came to those things and watched from afar. So her and I were able to talk some off and on, but before she passed, we had started to, it wasn't a parent bond, but it was more than a friendship. We had started to form some type of a connection right before she had been diagnosed. And one of the things she told me was that she had come to all of my stuff and had pictures to all my events, but did not want to interfere or step into the way. And that's when I realized again that she gave me the best gift in the world, but still cared enough to show up. Yeah, she loved you enough not to interfere with your secure attachment to your adoptive parents, right? Like they were going to be the parents and she wasn't going to, as much as she might have wanted to, because it sounds like she loved you very much, she knew that what was best for you. And I think love is doing what's best for the other person. She wanted to do what was best for you and what was best for you was not interfering with your attachment. It was. So, I mean, that just helped so much, seeing it back through different eyes. Because that's that's what it's all about, is putting someone else before yourself. Yeah. What has been the feedback to the book? Like, what's been the reaction ever since it's out there in the world? I've had really good reviews. A lot of people have said it's been inspirational. I've had people that have been really close to me say that they see me totally different now after reading the book and understanding. One person messaged me that has had had went through suicide as well. And was talking about how they could relate to so many different pieces of that and how it was hard to read that they had to put it down several times, but it helped them. So overall, it's been really good feedback. And that's the most important thing is I wanted it to help someone. I want them to know that they can overcome anything that's happened in their past with putting in the work and admitting that you need help. Yeah, very much admitting that you need the help and doing that work because it's so much work. It is. It is. It's the hardest work you will ever do, but it is so worth it because I would leave my counselor every week and I would be like, 
she'd ask me for an appointment and I'd be like, okay, I'll make an appointment for next week. And in my mind, I would be thinking, I'm not going back to her. This is too much. And as the week would get closer, I'd be like, well, it's rude to cancel. So I'll go this time, but I'm not going back anymore. And that kept going until always wanted to go. It was hard, but it was a good hard. It got to a good, really good place and it helps you under yourself. I always say therapy's the best gift you'll ever dread. You know, that's how I feel. I always want to be on the way home from therapy. Yes. Like having done the work. I felt like I needed a nap after therapy when I first started because it was exhausting. Then you would eventually leave and you would feel lighter than what you had going in. Going to that same personality of mine, I would bribe myself, especially the hard weeks when I knew we were going to talk about something really painful. I would bribe myself. There was a coffee shop near my therapist's office that had ridiculously overpriced but very good coffee. And I'd be like, okay, like, is this like a double latte day? Is this a cappuccino kind of a day? Like, it would be like, I would literally bribe myself. And my husband would laugh at me. He's like, you know, we have, uh, like, at that at one point, he had bought me a cappuccino machine, like, at home, like, a really nice coffee. He's like, we have a coffee machine. I'm like, yeah, I know. But, like, I needed to bribe myself to go to therapy with this cappuccino from the store. It's different. Either I do that or I'm going to go shopping. So which one do you want? Exactly. But I think everybody has that. In that contest, you know, six ninety five for for a coffee is not that bad because Bloomingdale is significantly worse. That is true. That is true. So... But it's true. It's And it's so hard for people to realize like what therapy can do for us when we're carrying so much from our childhood stuff we don't even realize we're carrying, like this giant invisible backpack that we can't even see ourselves. Yeah, because there's so much that can be explained about why you do the things you do, the decisions that you make. And you can give yourself more grace, I think, after going to counseling, because you understand better why you're acting the way you're acting. Yeah. And what you can't change. Like the parts, there are things about me that are hardwired into me. Like I will never be a deep sleeper. Like that will never happen. Okay. So then I need to sleep with a lot of noise machines. And yeah, I'm going to be somebody who needs more time to fall asleep than other people. And like, that's okay. Like that's not going to change. Other things like not being such a helicopter on my kids that I was able to change took time, but that that was something. And that's okay. Like, you know, I'm not somebody who enjoys big crowds and loud, overstimulating environments. Okay. That's probably not going to change. I don't need to change it. Doesn't mean I'm not going to take my kids to an amusement park sometimes, but, you know, it's not my first choice of things to do that's not going to change. No. And that's okay. Yeah. I think that sometimes like this type of memoir where people can like, you know, read your story and even if their story is very different, but they can see the, I went through a lot of pain and I had these thoughts and then I got better. I think it's so important for people to read and hear and think about. It is because, you know, I feel like that we get so focused on what we think we're not or what our failures are that we can't look at what we could be or what our accomplishments are. Very true. And what do you... Just, I guess, as a closing up question, I'm curious, what's because I'm thinking about this about my book. What are your um, thoughts about your kids reading your book? Nervously excited because they're going to read a little bit, maybe more. I'm a little bit more open about my feelings, probably, than I have been with them about my childhood. A little bit concerned about them reading 
the really sad parts about his suicide because I really do break that down in a different way just to kind of let people understand what that morning was like. So I worry about them reading that piece of it, but I'm really excited for them to see the overall, read the overall piece that I had came through the other end and that I did it for them. Yeah, like they're going to know you in a way that maybe they don't yet. Yes. Yes, they're going to understand it. Do you have an age? Like, did you tell them how old they'll have to be before you'll let them read it? Well, I've told Braden that he could probably read it any time now because he's 16 and he knows pretty much everything. Our daughter has sat here and watched me cry and has heard me reading pieces to her dad. But I'd say she's going to need to be 16, 17 before I want her to really read the whole story and understand. Like engage with it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I have that also. I'm I'm wondering, like, my book's going to hit the world, and that means that it's going to hit the world. So what will be, like, you know, with my own kids reading it and things like that, I haven't, like, fully, I mean, they have to be adults, that's for sure. But, you know, I think that's going to be an interesting experience. Well, and you have to navigate their friends buying the book and talking to the kids about it, because two of my son's friends bought the book. And I was like, oh, when when they told me that, I was like, oh, okay. So it's like, are they going to go ask him questions? So maybe I do need to let you have an idea of what's in this book. But that is, it's different because you're showing, it's easier to be vulnerable to people you don't know than to the people that you're the closest to. Yeah. And it sounds like that's not something that occurred to you that, oh, my son's friends might buy it. Like, it probably occurred to you that the lady at the grocery store might buy it or, you know, someone who you go to the gym with might buy it, but probably didn't occur to you that your son's friends would buy it. Because I imagine I'm thinking, oh, gosh, yeah, my daughter's friends might buy my book. Like, that also, it's like an interesting thought. Yeah, and never, I mean, it was not even in my realm of thoughts. And when they messaged me, it was literally like an, oh, moment, because at that moment, I was like, oh. Okay, so his circle of friends is going to know this story. You just don't think about that when you're writing. He's got a good group of friends, and he knows the story. He's just not heard it in such detail. And honestly, I don't know that he'll read it because it's not a political book. So, (laughs) Yeah, it's not the life of Abraham Lincoln. So, No, it's not political or history, so it's very low (laughs) on his to-read list. Yeah, but it really sounds like you've launched a great kid, even with all the trauma, which I think is so hopeful for post-traumatic parents, because so many of us worry, like, will my damage damage my kids? Like, what will be the legacy of my coping? Will it, you know, pass down in them? And you're really showing that, no, like, if you if you do the work and if you do the healing, your damage can stop with you. Thank you. That's the most important thing and the best compliment anybody could give me by far. Yeah. So I just think it's so true. It's so clear and apparent. So where can people in the post-traumatic parenting community find you? Like, where do you hang out in socials? I am on Instagram and Facebook under Brandy Cox author. And I love hearing other people's stories and interacting with them. That's been my favorite part about being on social media is getting the private messages and people talking about what they've been through because it helps so much to learn still. Um, And then I also have a website that is brandycoxauthor.com. 
So we will definitely link to that in the show notes so if people want to check it out if they want to order the book because it's out in the world so they can get it. Can they find it on Amazon? Like Yes. Yes, it is. It is on Amazon. So they can definitely check it out. And really, I think for some post-traumatic parents, it's interesting. People either love reading memoirs or are really scared to read memoirs. So I had my years of being really scared to read memoirs, and now I'm finding that I'm loving reading memoirs. So I think that, you know, for a lot of members of the post-traumatic parenting community, just because like memoirs scared you in the past doesn't mean they always will. I think there's a point in our healing where we want to hear other people's stories. So we get there. Yes, absolutely. Memoirs are my favorite now because it really, it's different. You see something from a different lot and you learn something from every book. Yeah. And you just learn that lens and that like, oh, that's just like me. That's different from me. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. You know, that just enhances us. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. And I can't wait for this episode to air because I think that it's going to strike a chord with a lot of people in the post-traumatic parenting community. And you have any last thoughts for the community? No, just please reach out. I mean, I would love to form a community where we're helping each other and we're sharing stories and helping, giving guidance and advice on how to navigate because we're all still learning and we're still going to all make mistakes. Yeah, totally. So thank you so much. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? You have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents too. Can't wait to hear from you.